2.1 billion. That's a pretty big number. If you counted one number every second, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it would take you about 70 years to count to 2.1 billion. 2.1 billion people around the world claim the name of Jesus today. And 2.1 billion is just a fraction of the number of people who have followed Jesus for the last 2,000 years. But this worldwide family of believers began with only a small number of committed individuals who had an encounter with a power larger than themselves. That handful of people went from being faces in the crowd to active parts of a movement that would change the course of humanity forever. Through the Spirit of God, we have the potential for great things. Jesus has empowered each one of us to change the course of history. It's up to us to take on that challenge. The founders of the early church were not anything special on their own. They were ordinary people who encountered an extraordinary power and responded in obedience. That's their origin story. What's yours? Well, good morning. Glad you're here with us this morning. If you're brand new or if you've kind of forgotten where we've been over the last couple of weeks, we're in the middle of a series called Origin Story. And our uh, endeavor, our desire, our goal in the middle of this series is to understand who we are as a church with crystal clarity. So what we've been doing is going through our mission, our vision, and our values. Our mission, which we will get to in a minute, is simply uh, why we exist. So what are we even doing here? Our values, there's six of them, is kind of what guides our behavior in the midst of pursuing our mission and our vision. And then our vision has a timeline attached to it. It's got numbers attached to it. It's kind of that dot out on the horizon that, that we want to see our church move towards, specifically over the next decade. And we have a goal here, not a dream, I want you to know. Because you know the difference between a goal and a dream? A goal has timeline and accountability. Dream just kind of out there. Goal has timeline and accountability. So our vision, our dot out on the horizon is this, that by 2030, we endeavor to be a family of 6,000 disciples. And we don't want just 6,000 converts or 6,000 rear ends and seats here so that you know, we keep them warm on Sunday. We endeavor to be a family of 6,000 disciples who are doing four things, discovering a life connected to God and others, dedicating themselves to God's word and prayer, declaring the good news about Jesus, and demonstrating that good news in all of life. That's what the disciple does. And that's what we want to do. We just want to reach more people with the good news about Jesus within the context of the greater Toronto area and, and so that they become his disciples and walk in the way of Jesus. And one of the things that we've got to do in order to achieve this vision, this goal, is to leverage some of our strengths. And we've got a lot of strengths here at Bayview Glen. Life groups, serve teams, the people in these uh, seats. And we've got all kinds of strengths at Bayview Glen. And one of those strengths is our corporate worship environment. And so I want to talk to you really quickly about something that we're going to do from just kind of a ministry strategy perspective in the fall, and then I need to solicit your feedback on something. So a couple of key principles before we talk about this ministry strategy thing that we're going to do in the fall. The first is this, that new churches reach new people. New churches reach new people. You have a really big church that's vibrant and growing and healthy and making an impact on the community. And if you plant a little bitty church beside it with you know, minimal resources, minimal people and all that stuff, that church is going to reach new people. It just happens. That's, that's, that's what the data bears out. So new churches reach new people. The same thing goes for services, new 
worship services, when they're on different days and different times, things like that, they just tend to reach new people. You might already see where I'm going here. Second truth I want to share with you is this, that, uh, next slide if you would, is this, that between 9.30 and 11 a.m., that's like the number one time that people want to go to church. You know that? Like we start a service at 8.30, there'd be four of us. And, and, we, and we've done it before. We started a service at 1, and there were 14 of us. Everybody wants to go between 9.30 and 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Now, you want to come to church at a time where you're not going to have to hustle for parking, Right, you're, you're not gonna have to. Uh, you're not gonna have to. You know, nudge somebody out of your seat. You can sit wherever you want. We will run a service on Tuesday mornings at 4 a.m. We're happy to do that, but that's likely not gonna reach a lot of people. Why? Because at 4 a.m. on Tuesdays, you're doing what all God's people should be doing, which is sleeping. So between 9:30 and 11 a.m., we tend to be pretty packed here on our campus. I don't know if you've noticed that, both here in our corporate worship environment and in the parking lot. You ever have a difficult time getting out of this parking lot? You ever come in here and say, oh God, I make a commitment to you to be your disciple this week, and then you go out into the parking lot and you get unchristian that quick? Does that ever happen to you? It's like, you know, everybody, yes, all your promises are yes, and get out of my way, you know, which is, you know, the great part is that's happened to me, and I love it because I just roll down my window and I look back, they're like, we just honked at the pastor. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. You've done that before, right? You've done it. So the last truth I want to share with you is this. It's the 70% rule. Here's the idea. If you're in a, a corporate gathering, if you're uh, at uh, you know, the Raptors game tonight, if you've got extra seats, let me know. Um, <laughs> if you are in Jurassic Park tonight, uh, if you started camping out two hours ago to get there, uh, if you're in a movie theater if you're in a, like a ball game or, a, or any, a, 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 a gathering like this, a corporate gathering, once you kind of hit that 70% full mark, even though technically we have seats in here, you go around, yeah, there's empty seats in here. We're not at capacity, but at 70%, you hit what's called visual capacity, which means people come in here and they look and they say it's full. Anybody ever walked into this room a little bit late for worship service? I know that there's a thousand of you in here that have, right? You're a little bit late and you go, man, it is packed in here. How am I going to find a seat? You ever done that? One, two, three, raise your hand. Yeah, right. It's because it's at 70%. There are still seats, but it's a 70% rule. So here's what we're going to do in the fall. We're going to launch a new weekend worship service. We're going to launch one probably on Saturday night, maybe, or not probably, either on Saturday or on Sunday night. We're not sure yet. And the reason that we're going to do that is to free up some capacity here because we want to accommodate the growth that we've already experienced. But, uh, and maybe even more importantly, we want to catalyze growth because new services reach new people. And so here's what I need from you. I need you to grab your phone right now and make sure it's on silent, number one. Number two, text the word survey to this number, 647-490-2227. So grab your phone, text the word survey to that number. And what you're gonna get in response is a link that you can click and it will take you to a, hey, hey, up here. A link that will take you to a, 
Yeah, it's not a trick question, men and women of God. It's, it's an easy survey. It's going to ask you a couple questions about your family, a couple questions about how many people come to church with you, and then it's going to ask you to indicate your preference either Saturday night or Sunday night or 5, 6, or 7 p.m. Indicate your preference on time. If there are any of you that would prefer a Tuesday morning at 4 a.m. service, uh, we have a biblical counseling department here that we'd love to connect you with one of those therapists, okay, because you are broken. Uh, so... So what we're doing is just trying to get a gauge of where our congregation's at and, and what you would prefer and what maybe, like, and more importantly, what your guests would prefer because we want to bring people here so that they hear the good news about Jesus and, and, and he's transformed by, or the, that Jesus transforms them. And so we need to know from you. Now, if you don't want to do that now, you're like, look, I'm a note taker or I left my phone in the car or whatever it is, then take that connect card in front of you, complete some information, drop your email in there, and we'll send you an email this week with a link to that survey and you can do the survey uh, while you're supposed to be working, right? Sitting in your cubicle and just take a little break, do the survey. It'll take you, anybody already done with it? Yeah, there you go. See, already done with it. It's real quick. It's real quick. It's real easy. We just need to know. Sound good? Okay, so here's what we're doing. Here is our mission. Here's why we even exist. And it says, we work together so that everyone everywhere can experience God's love and his created purpose through Jesus. And you might have been a part of this series, Origin Story, over the last five or six weeks in recognizing that we do not exist in a spiritual vacuum. We have 2,000 years of church history behind us and even thousands of years of the history of God's people even before Christ that shape this, that mold this, that make us who we are. And this is who we are, not individuals, people who work together so that everyone everywhere can experience two things, God's unconditional, relentless, and passionate love for them and two, the way that he has created created them to live fully and abundantly in him. So I have been saying this and our other pastors have been saying this over and over and over for the last several weeks, but I want to invite all of us to declare this together, not just repeat it, wrote, but let's, let's make this our own and say it together. You ready? Here we go. We work together so that everyone can experience God's love and his created purpose through Jesus. Yeah, and we have these values that govern our behavior. We've covered three of them already. And here's what I wanna do as we read these values. Next slide. I want you to say the word in yellow. I'll do the white ones, you read the yellow ones. Ready? Jesus, everybody's, and we are better. Value number four, which we're taking a look at today, is that we're made new to renew. And here's what I want to do today. I want to do two things. I want to set up for you a theological, biblical framework for the reason why we've adopted this value and we want it to permeate each and everything that we do here, that we're made new to renew. I want you to understand why from a theological and biblical perspective. That's one. And then number two, I want to provide you one application point. Just one. Not complicated. And the application point, check this out. Two words, six letters. Easy, okay, easy. And then I wanna provide some stories for you over the last 2,000 years of church history that hopefully will inspire you and motivate you and catalyze you to pursue this value in your own life. So theological framework and then point of application. So let's pray and we'll get into it. Oh God, our desire today is to hear from you that we would be shaped by you that when we walk out of this place in 45 minutes or so, that we would be more like you then than we are right now. And, and God, we believe you can do that. 
God, for the hard-hearted in this place, for the apathetic, for those who maybe it's been a long time since they've experienced your spirit or something inside of them. God, we believe you can do it for them too. God, we believe that when your word is preached that people hear and place their faith and trust in you, God, would you come and meet us, O Spirit of God, and change us and make us different and set our hearts and our church on fire for you so that we're a beacon of light and hope in the world. Speak, O Spirit of God. Together, the people of God said, Amen. There's a, a museum right by my house that's connected to a park, and Kaya, who is my uh, four-and-a-half-year-old, the, the one you saw a little bit ago up here on platform, uh, she and I go over to this park on a regu- really regular basis. And we were at this park just a few weeks ago, and Kaya said, Daddy, can we go to the museum? And I said, no, we can't go to the museum. Museum are for nerds, like for, for, for people who read and like know stuff, and that's not your dad, Right? She said, no, Daddy, I want to go to the museum. I said, okay, fine. So we go to the museum. It was fascinating. Very, very interesting Canadian history museum, specifically uh, related to the middle of the 19th century. So what was actually on property at this museum was an old schoolhouse, which was really cool. And they actually had some of the disciplinary tactics that, you know, they used in the middle of the 19th century there in the schoolhouse. I said, Kaya, how would you like it if I, no, no, I didn't, I didn't. So they, they, they had school books and desks and all that stuff. Then they had like a big mansion and all the same stuff in, in the mansion, all the original stuff was in there, all the furniture and the silverware and the china. It was fascinating. And they actually had this, uh, in one of the rooms, like a plank that was about this high off the ground, just a plank with a hole in the top of it. And I asked Kaya, I said, what do you think that is? She said, I don't know, Daddy. I said, think, babe. Think, what do you think that is? I don't know, Daddy. I said, let me try something. So I picked her up with all her clothes on, and I set her down right on top of the hole. She said, oh, Daddy, it's a toy wit. <laughs> and I said, yes, babe, it is. That's, that's the toilet from the 19th century. And then the last place we went to was this log cabin. And in the log cabin, there was a loom. There was these little beds. There was like a small tub for bathing. And then there was a stack of books. And in that stack of books was a Bible and a hymnal. And I actually started flipping through the hymnal, and I filmed myself doing it. It's up here on the screen. And and there were titles of songs like, let's see, 100 Years Ago or Treasures of Heaven. Uh, There's all kinds of different titles in here. You you can't see them, but uh, there's America, National Hymn. I don't know why that's in a Canadian hymnal, but that's beside the point. Um, It's uh, Help, Lord. Death is there. Uh, A few more years. I long to be there. Uh, That will be heaven for me. And, and it was interesting because about every other song, and I'm not kidding, it's not an exaggeration, I'm not, about every other song was about going to heaven when you die. Like, death is there, that will be heaven for me, treasures of heaven, when I get there, I long to be there, when this life is over, I'm going to go to heaven and be with Jesus. And I sang a lot of those songs growing up. You may have sang stuff like, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Nobody. Okay, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. That's what we sang about growing up. And, and, and what these hymnals reveal and what even the songs of my youth reveal is a misunderstanding of what the Gospels mean when they talk about the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is not something that's somewhere out there that you long to go when you die. Rather, Jesus shows up and invites us 
inaugurates the kingdom and then invites us to participate with him in bringing the kingdom in the here and now. You see the difference? See, this is the invitation of the Gospels. A a modern scholar and theologian named N.T. Wright, he he wrote this. He said, ah, we think God's kingdom is simply the sum total of all the souls who respond in faith to God's love. It isn't a real kingdom in time and space and matter. It's a spiritual reality, not of this world. N.T. Wright says, no, that's not true. John, though, the apostle, will not collude with this platonic shrinkage. This is the best language ever, isn't it? Platonic shrinkage. Here, let me, let me just quickly explain it to you. That Plato and others like him, and even the Gnostics of, of, of early Christendom, believed in this soul-body dichotomy, this soul-body bifurcation. Thus, the soul will depart from the body and go to be with God when you die. And, 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 and N.T. Wright comes along and says, that is platonic shrinkage. That is not the gospel. The gospel is broader. It's more comprehensive. It, it changes all. All of who we are and all of the world around us. It's not just about going to heaven when you die. It's about bringing heaven in the here and now. N.T. Wright goes on. He says, our questions have been wrongly put. They haven't been about the kingdom. They've been about God's so- they haven't been about God's sovereign saving rule coming on earth as in heaven. Instead, our questions have been about a salvation that rescues people from the world instead of for the world. You see the difference? Uh, Going to heaven has been the object ever since the Middle Ages, at least, in the Western church. So sin is what stops us from getting there so that the cross must deal with sin. So that we can leave this world and go to the much better one in the sky or in eternity or whatever. But this is simply untrue to the story the Gospels are telling. Which, again, explains why we've all misread these wonderful texts. Whatever the cross achieves must be articulated if we are to take the four gospels seriously within the context of the kingdom bringing victory. Here's what N.T. Wright is saying. Fifty times in the four gospels the word sin is mentioned. Sixty times in the four gospels the word salvation is mentioned. And over 120 times in the four gospels the word kingdom is mentioned. More than twice any other word that's you know, not a conjunction or an and or a the or whatever. Jesus came to inaugurate a kingdom in the here and now on earth. In other words, right is right. He's also right, but more importantly than that for our purposes, he's right. Okay, He's right about what he's saying, that we are charged to bring the kingdom in the here and now. As a very famous theologian once said, ooh baby, do you know what that's worth? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. That's Belinda Carlisle, if you know her. Maybe a better theologian to quote would be Jesus, who taught us to pray this way. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Say these words with me, on earth as it is in heaven. See, the very nature of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, from start to finish, kind of runs like the trajectory of a short story. You may have read short stories in high school, college, university. Uh, Some of you probably read them even now. My friend Dave Lewis, a pastor on staff here who used to teach high school, uh, introduced me to this concept a couple years ago. And he says, Lucas, the, the, the trajectory of scripture as a whole, from Genesis to Revelation, kind of reads like the trajectory of a short story. I said, really? He said, absolutely, check it out. This line represents the trajectory of a short story. And in a short story, there is always a setting, you know, who, who, what, when, where, that kind of thing, and then a conflict shows up. That represents that yellow dot, a conflict between the protagonist and the world around him or her. 
in what ensues at that point is called the rising action, and it's all the consequences of that conflict. What happens because of this conflict here? Then the story comes to an apex, comes to a climax, represented by the cross here in our image. We'll come back to that in a minute. Then you've got what's called the falling action, in which the story begins to resolve, and the consequences experienced back here, because of the conflict, start to resolve here. And ultimately, the story comes to a complete and total resolution. The French word is denouement, but because I don't speak French and I have a horrible French accent, I just say resolution. So... Dave says to me, he says, look, the scripture reads the same way. He says, Luke, what's the setting of the scripture? I said, well, it's, it's the Garden of Eden. It's man and God walking together in the cool of the day, charged for, to do what it is that, you know, to, to work the ground and to be fruitful and multiply and have relationship with God. I'm like, yeah, that, that's, that's it. He said, now what's the conflict? And I said, well, man decided he would make a better God than God. He said, yeah. And then what happened? And I said, all sorts of nasty stuff. Yeah, that's the rising action. He says, now now check this out. When you read the Old Testament as a list of do's and don'ts and a moral code, it doesn't make sense, does it? I said, not really. He said, but when you read it as the, the narrative of what happened when the world went haywire back here, it makes a whole lot more sense. I said, yeah, it does. There's some nasty stuff that happens there. There's some nasty, broken things that we see in our world that are a result of when, God, or when man decides that they make a better God than God. But the climax of Scripture, the zenith, the apex, the best part is, everybody say it with me, it's the cross. It's when Jesus comes to inaugurate his kingdom. And he says, all this stuff over here that's busted up, I came to fix it. Went to the cross, died, resurrected, ascended into heaven, and has now released us to be a part of this falling action where all this stuff gets unraveled. And eventually, when God comes back to make his kingdom complete and makes all things new, we will experience this resolution of all things. But until then, you and I, we live right here in the what? The falling action. We live in this moment where the kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's not quite yet complete. And our role, men and women of God, is now to join God in his efforts to restore and redeem and renew all things. It's not, and I repeat, our job is not to tread water until we die. That's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is taking back territory for the king that was lost back here. That's faithfulness. See, this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, watch, he says, therefore, if anyone's Christ, he's a new creation. You've been made new. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and what? Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, what Paul is saying is we are made new in order to renew. We are made new in order to renew. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are changed in order to bring change. We are saved in order to bring redemption. We are called out by God only so that he could send us back into the world as agents of the kingdom, bringing goodness and generosity and hope and healing and renewal where those things have been broken. And men and women of God, at Bayview Glen Church, we will see ourselves in that light. We, we will not tread water until this is all over and we can just go to heaven and walk streets of gold and swim in the crystal sea. 
That's not, that's not what we're going to do. We will see each other and see ourselves and see our church as agents of God's hope and healing and renewal in the world. We are made new in order to renew. Is everybody getting the theological grid here? We get in it? Good. Just nod your head. We'll move on. Good. Okay. So here's what I want to do. Point of application. If you're jotting down notes, just jot this down. Here's how you do it. Ready? Here's how you be an agent of renewal in the world. Now that God has made you new, here's, here's how you become an agent of renewal in the world. Very, very simple. Ready? Move in. Just move in. It's not complicated. Just move in. Now, I want to tell you five stories. Five. About how people over the last 2,000 years of church history saw themselves as agents of renewal in the world and made a choice to move into pain and not away from it. To move toward hurting and not away from it. Move into culture and not away from it in order to be agents of renewal in the world. Let's start with the example himself, capital E, shall we? Jesus who existed with God, coexisted in three persons. God existed, co good grief. I feel like the founders of the early church who were trying to articulate the, the theology of the Trinity. And then when the co-substance and also substance, church history people, you think that's funny. The rest of you are going, this is stupid. Um, Jesus, who existed with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity past, made a choice to become flesh and move in to the neighborhood. See, the very first person that moved in was God himself. Rather than running away from pain, he ran toward it. Rather than running away from hurting, he ran toward it. Rather than running away from sinners, he ran toward it in order to bring renewal in the world. We've been talking about church history for the last couple weeks, and you remember the plague of Galen and the plague of Cyprian in the second and fourth centuries, uh, respectively, and how smallpox and measles began to ravage the Roman Empire, and up to 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome, and, and physicians and social workers and priests and everybody running out of the city, everybody get away, this is, this is just killing people, it's a complete epidemic, and when others ran from pain, Christians ran toward it, the church ran Toward pain, when others moved out, Christians moved in, and hence the reason that the church caught like wildfire and spread throughout the Roman Empire is because the church came alongside the hurting and the broken and the dying and even the dead in order to provide for them, love them, care for them, and be agents of renewal in the world. Fast forward to the end of the third century. There was a guy named Nicholas. There's a picture of him up here on the screen. This is not like a photo. This is not like, an, it's not like a hashtag no filter. <laughs> you might not think that's funny. I think that's funny. Uh, you didn't think that was funny? Man, sh shoot, you guys are a tough crowd this morning. Okay, so Nicholas, end of the third century, uh, was a very, very rich man. And not like he had a little bit of money, but like Scrooge McDuck rich, like swimming in gold coins rich, right? Like the whole thing. And, and, and Nicholas had inherited all of this money, but, but unfortunately for all those in his employ, Nicholas converted to Christianity. 
And when he began to see himself as an agent of renewal, hope, and healing in the world that could not stick inside an ivory tower with a real big castle wall, which he had in order to protect himself from outsiders and protect himself from the sick and the impoverished and the hurting and the disabled, he said, I can no longer do that because I've been made new in order to renew. So he sold it all. He sold it all. And he moved out of his protective castle and he just moved right on in with those who were poor and hurting and broken, with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, just like Jesus did. And he used to walk around the streets and say, you need health care? Here, I can help. You need, uh, you need bread? Here, I can help. You need a place to sleep? Here, I can help. Because he had sold everything he had. He just started giving all that money away in order to bring hope and renewal in the world. There's one story of Nicholas that I absolutely love. He came across a, a trio of sisters, three daughters, man had three daughters, and the man had zero money in order to provide a wedding dowry for those three girls. So they couldn't get married because no one would choose to marry them without a wedding dowry. Back then, that's just how things worked. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying that's how things worked. So Nicholas decided, I want to help because their only other option was to sell themselves into sexual slavery, which is what they were about to do. So Nicholas gathered up a bunch of money to provide them a wedding dowry. But he didn't want anybody to know it was him providing, right? So instead of just walking up saying, here's three bags of gold, you know, provide them with a wedding dowry, go get your daughters married up so they're cared for and they're not, they don't have to sell themselves into prostitution. Nicholas instead climbed up on the roof of their house and took a bag of gold and dumped it down the chimney. And he did the same thing the next night. He did the same thing the next night. And those three bags of gold became the wedding dowry for those three young women, and they were able to be married and, take care of, and be taken care of because Nicholas became an agent of hope and renewal in the world. Uh, you, you may have heard of another guy who drops stuff down chimneys still these days, yeah? This is Saint Nick. That's where that story comes from. See, his thumbprint's still on the culture because he saw himself as an agent of renewal in the world. Fast forward to London in the 19th century. London was a bad place to be in the middle of the 19th century during the Industrial Revolution because all these farmers were moving into the cities in order to uh, get jobs and work, and it was filled with poverty and hurt and violence and brokenness. You may have seen any, like documentaries and TV shows based on this time in London. It was an ugly place to be. So a man named George Williams decided, you know, as a Christian, I can't just let this stuff go. Like, I gotta do something. I gotta come alongside these folks. And rather than collecting 11 friends in order to hide out in their religious enclave, which is maybe what our natural inclination would be, maybe my natural inclination would be, let's just have Bible studies from here on out. No, 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 no. George Williams says, let's study the Bible and pray, and then let's be agents of change in the culture. And they begin to invite people in to get sober, to get housing, to, get a, to learn a trade, and, and to teach them and train them and equip them because they saw so much ache and heartache and pain in 19th century London. They came up with a very creative name for that group of 12. He, he looked around, George Williams did, and said, man, we're, uh, so we're, we're young and we're Christian and we're men and we kind of associate together, so why don't we call ourselves the Young Men's Christian Association? And today, the YMCA is still bringing hope, healing, and renewal 
all across the world. There's a little pub in London. This is example number four here. Jesus, Nicholas, uh, George Williams, and, and, and here's one more. There's a pub in London called The Blind Beggar. Still exists today, actually. Um, anybody ever been to the pub, The Blind Beggar, in London that you'd be willing to admit in church on a Sunday? Yeah, no, I didn't think, didn't think you would. Uh, Blind Beggar in London was a place where the roustabouts and the ragtags, the rapscallions, the scalawags uh, hung out. Those are just the only words I can think of right now. And, and it was a bad place to be. And, and Christians didn't necessarily run to the blind beggar in 19th century London. They ran away from it. But a guy named William Booth decided, you know what? Um, if I am going to preach to those who Jesus preached to, if I am going to be an agent of renewal for those that Jesus brought renewal and hope for, I can't run away from the blind beggar. I got to run to it. And so William Booth got ordained as a Methodist minister, and he began to set up shop and just preach the gospel among the drunks and the down and outs and the poor and the hurting there at the blind beggar pub. And people started to get converted. You know what? You know what's funny? It's all those that were uh, trafficking alcohol around uh, Great Britain at the end of the 20th century all hated William Booth. Because people would convert and go, I'm not gonna drink anymore. And the people that were selling alcohol were like, well, this stinks for us. Our bottom line is going down. William Booth says, sorry, man. I'm just doing what God called me to do. I've been made new in order to renew, so I'm just bringing renewal where I can and talk about the gospel and talk about Jesus. And that group of converts began to grow, began to grow. And William Booth was fond of calling them an army of volunteers. An army of volunteers, which we're just bringing hope and healing and renewal in the world. His father-in-law once told him, hey, don't call it a volunteer army. You just call it a salvation army. How about that? He said, okay. And today the Salvation Army is around 130 plus countries in the world bringing hope, healing, and renewal. It's because he moved in, not moved out. There's a movement of young people, I met a couple of them even this week as I was at a conference, who have decided that instead of moving out of the urban, under-resourced, and poor areas of Toronto, they are going to move in. Move in to the difficult areas, move into the impoverished areas, move into the places where God's message of renewal needs to be preached because they understand themselves as people who have been made new in order to renew. And so they're just gonna move in. You know what? And they've created a ministry, actually. You can get online and check it out. Does anyone wanna guess what the ministry is called? Very creative name. It's just called Move In. It's wild, move in. It's like, oh my gosh, hire a marketing person for crying out loud. Well, they don't need a marketing person. So they've got all these people all over, Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, all over the country, just moving into these areas because they wanna be agents of change. Hop online, check them out. It's a great ministry to get in, get in touch with. And you know what, men and women of God, it's happening right here, right now at Bayview as well. I was thinking about the New Testament this week and thinking about there are some letters uh, that Paul and others write to the churches that are admonishment, you know, correction type of letters. But more often than not, there's a lot of this. You're doing it. Keep it up. So Bayview Glen Church, I know you. I've known you for six years. I know many of you by name. Let me tell you something. You're doing it. Keep it up. 
You might not think you're doing it. You might not always recognize when you're doing it. You might could get better at doing it, but you're doing it. Keep it up in your work, in your school, in your marketplace. When you move into somebody else's pain rather than away from it. When you move in with a listening ear rather than away from it. When you see people going through difficulties and you come alongside to pray rather than running away from them. You are bringing renewal in the world because you've been made new. In fact... I was thinking of a family here at Bayview Glen Church uh, that um, came across a two and three year old uh, boy and girl siblings about five and a half years ago. They came across them because CAS approached this family here at Bayview Glen Church, one of our life group leaders actually, and said, would you consider adopting these two babies? We've just pulled them out of their home. CAS does not pull babies out of their home because there's a light socket that wasn't covered. You understand that? It's a little more significant than that. I don't want to make light of that. I also don't want to share the details of that, but understand this was a dire situation. Those two kiddos lived with that family for a year in foster care. They were reunited with their biological mother. That did not last long. They were pulled out again by CAS. They jumped from foster home to foster home. And finally, about three years ago, they came to live with that family permanently. Three, year, or, uh, three weeks ago, that adoption was finalized. And this morning in the first service, they dedicated that seven and eight-year-old right here on our platform. Why? Why? See, understand, I was made new to renew. Instead of running away from pain, I move into it. Men and women of God, it's happening right here, right now. Don't miss it. Keep your eye out for it. And keep your eye out for the opportunity to step out in faith and obedience when God calls you to do the same thing and check it out. He's gonna. That's the only difference. You know this, this right here, this is the only difference between you and the heroes of faith. When they had opportunity, they obeyed. That's the only difference. These are really plain people. You know that? Like, I know the couple who adopted. I mean, I can look at them and they're heroes of the faith. I mean, how can you systematically reorganize your entire life in order to move into pain and make change in the world? How do you do that? Because they are so compelled by an extraordinary power, but they are fantastically ordinary people. There's nothing special about them. There's nothing different about you. There's nothing different about Martin Luther King Jr. and you. There's, not nothing, nothing, there's nothing different about William Booth or about Saint Nick. There's, there's nothing different about the Apostle Paul. There's nothing different. They were ordinary people who were consumed by an extraordinary power. And when they had the opportunity, they obeyed. Will you? One question. One question to close and then we can be done. We are made new to renew. And what that requires is that we will move in. So here's the question. Where will you move in? And it's not just about geography, men and women of God. It's about all kinds of other things. Let me talk geography, though, for a minute. You may not have known today, coming into this place, that God was calling you into a life of full-time global missions. But you may be hearing that in your heart right now. Please do not harden your hearts and close your ears. That's the Spirit of God talking to you. Probably not all of you, but there may be one or two. And you may be surprised by that. You may be, I don't think God's calling me into global missions. He called me to move to another country to serve him. And he called me to Canada. And now I like it. 
He may be calling you too. Listen, listen, listen so closely because there might be a couple of you in this room that you're hearing something and you're sensing something in your spirit that's not bad Mexican food from last night. It's not what that is. That is the spirit of God talking to you and I would encourage you just to say yes and yes, God, I'll take my first step in order to move in and bring renewal in the world. For some of you, it's not about global missions. For some of you, it's just about getting on mission locally. For some of you, God may be calling you to sell your home, just like St. Nick did, and move in to a place in the city that needs light and salt. For some of you, God may be calling you to move in to church and Wellesley. Don't, don't sit there in terror. This is God's design for us, men and women. This is, this is commissioning of us. Uh, parents, siblings, uh, people who are in school and at work, you come across hurt and loneliness and brokenness and isolation on a daily basis in your life. That person that shares a cube with you, that person that lives across the street from you, maybe they will not let you move in, but you invite them over, and tonight at 8 p.m. is a great time to do that. That's the Raptors tip-off, by the way, everybody. It's about moving in towards somebody rather than retreating back into our spiritual enclaves and saying, I'm safe here, I'm comfortable here. Why? Because God has called you. He's rescued you. He's redeemed you. He has made you new so that you can be an agent of renewal in the world. Let's pray. Men and women of God, in the next couple of minutes, uh, just of silence here, not a couple of minutes, 30 seconds maybe, I would invite you and encourage you to ask God, where are you calling me to move in? And maybe it's not about geography, maybe it's about emotion, maybe it's about relationship, maybe it's just about wrapping your arm around a coworker or a neighbor. But he's calling you somewhere to move in. Because you are not made new so that you go to heaven when you die. You are made new in order to bring the kingdom in the here and now. Made new to renew. And maybe you've not ever prayed like this before where you ask God, where are you calling me to move in? Let me just give you a little bit of instruction and then I'll give us a time of silence. It's simply saying in your head and in your heart, God, where are you calling me to move in? You know what I mean by that. Where are you calling me to move toward? Where are you calling me to be an agent of redemption, to bring kingdom values? Where are you calling me? And then just quietly sit before God. And in your mind, in your heart, look for a picture, listen for a word. God typically doesn't speak out loud, but he can speak to you in your spirit. So I would invite you to ask him that question. God, where are you calling me to move in? We'll spend a couple of moments in silence here and then we'll conclude with a song.
God, give each of us clarity in terms of where you're calling us to move in and then give us courage to do it. God, the opportunities abound, but obedience is difficult. God, I pray that the people in this place would not experience shame or fear when those opportunities have presented themselves and we have not been obedient, when we've seen the good we could have done and did not do it, that we wouldn't experience a worldly shame that shuts us down, but it's a godly conviction that says, I will have the courage, I will not shrink back. I'll step out in faith because God has made me new. I'll step out in faith to be an agent of renewal in the world. God, show us where we can move in in little ways, in big ways, in ways that don't cost us much and perhaps even in ways that cost us everything. God, let us be the kind of people that have that kind of godly courage to obey you in that way. In Christ's name.